It was market day in Guernica, Spain. People crowded the town square, examining wares, drinking wine, and enjoying life. The sleepy Basque town seemed almost immune from the civil war that had been raging across the rest of the country since last summer. Then, church bells suddenly began to ring. Townspeople looked toward the sky, where over 25 German and Italian bombers and over a dozen fighters were flying toward them. They were shocked. Guernica had no strategic value. Why were they coming here? They didn't have time to come up with an answer. They barely even had time to run. The town was bombed for close to three hours. The wooden buildings were set aflame. Machine gunfire cut down anyone seen running away. The fires burned for three days. 1,654 civilians, almost a third of the town's population, were killed, and another 889 were wounded. The goal was to send a message to the Basque peoples of northern Spain. Stand with Francisco Franco or suffer the consequences. Franco didn't believe he was fighting a war. To him, it was a crusade. Spain had fought crusades against the Moors, the heathens in the New World, and their Moroccan subjects. This war was just another in a long line of holy conflicts. And Franco saw himself not just as the Generalissimo, but as the savior of Spain, the man who would return it to its 16th century greatness. The destruction of towns like Guernica was a small price to pay for total victory. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season, we're exploring the reigns of 20th century caudillos Fulgencio Batista of Cuba, Juan Perón of Argentina, and Francisco Franco of Spain. Today, we'll examine the rise of Spanish dictator Francisco Franco. He used his fame as a soldier to launch a civil war and became Spain's head of government. Next week, we'll explore the consequences of Franco's long reign. We'll delve into the choices he made, both good and ill, that led him to become one of the most divisive leaders in Spain's history. All of that is coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Hi, I'm Blair. Wanna hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. Hi, I'm Michael Weatherly. And I'm Cody DePablo. We played agents Tony Dinozo and Ziva David on NCIS, one of the world's biggest shows. 
And now we're doing a rewatch podcast. This is Off Duty with guests like Sasha Alexander. I'm really happy to see you guys, by the way. Eric Olson. By the way, you broke a finger. I lost a nail. <laughs> We've never really done this. Watch and listen every Tuesday on Spotify. Foof. Spain was one of the dominant powers in Europe during the 16th and 17th centuries. At its height, the Spanish Empire controlled the majority of land within the Americas and had colonies scattered all across the globe. While Spain started to industrialize during the late 18th century, it wasn't able to keep up with its European neighbors thanks to its outdated feudal system and cripplingly large aristocracy. For instance, Northern Europe in particular fully embraced manufacturing, but in Spain only a few areas like the textile, iron, and steel industries took to manufacturing. Even worse, a 1788 census showed that about 50% of Spain's adult male population wasn't working in any line of productive labor. By the end of the 1800s, Spain had lost all of its colonies in the New World. The government was in disarray. Between 1814 and 1874, there were 37 attempted coups led by military generals who claimed they were the saviors of the country. Twelve succeeded. The volatile economic and political situation looked unsalvageable. Many Spaniards began to hope for the arrival of a strong man, a caudillo, a savior of Spain, to return the country to its former prosperity they would learn to be careful what they wished for. Francisco Franco was born December 4, 1892 in El Ferrol, a city that was home to an important naval base in northwestern Spain. His family had lived there for over 150 years. His early life was shaped by his father, a vice admiral in the Navy. Harsh discipline was de rigueur in their house, and punishments were regular. Franco's father disliked the short and scrawny Francisco the most out of all of his children. The young Franco was serious and introverted. He was very small and never grew taller than five foot four. His voice was high-pitched, even as an adult, and had a quiet nasal quality that people found unsettling. Even though they could barely afford it, Franco's parents provided their children with the best private education money could buy. In school, Franco didn't do well in math, but instead displayed a talent for drawing and crafts. However, he didn't want to pursue these creative arenas. He had only one goal, to be a Navy man like his father. Unfortunately, the Navy had a surplus of officers at the time, and Franco wasn't able to get in. But he refused to abandon his dream of joining the military. The army, with its merit-based promotions, seemed like the best way for him to achieve his dream of being a naval officer. So at only 14 years old, Franco traveled to Toledo to take the entrance exam for the Infantry Academy. He passed and was one of the 382 new students accepted into the program. Between his diminutive frame and high-pitched voice, he was the perfect target for hazing. Older cadets would tie him up and hurl him off of his cot, or they would hide his books and force him to go looking for them. 
In 1910, Franco graduated as a second lieutenant and was ranked an unimpressive 251 out of 312 in his class. If he wanted to rise through the ranks, he would need to gain combat experience, which means he would have to serve in Morocco. But Army Command wouldn't allow such a big assignment to a newly commissioned officer. Instead, he was assigned to a garrison in his hometown of El Ferrol. At the garrison, his senior officers were impressed by his tactical knowledge and his uncanny ability to command. After only one year in the garrison, he was made his regiment's special instructor for training new corporals. He asked again to be transferred to Morocco in 1911, and this time his request was approved. Morocco would become Franco's proving ground, where he learned everything about command. Franco would later say, Without Africa, I would hardly be able to explain me to myself. Spain's Moroccan colony was mostly useless land, but the government considered it a buffer zone against France, who controlled the rest of the country. It was also one of Spain's last remaining overseas colonies, a source of national pride for the government, and they were determined to hold on to it at all costs. It wasn't an easy colony to maintain. The tribesmen were constantly launching tiny rebellions, and the Spanish forces were almost always in a state of war. When a revolt led by the Anjara tribe broke out in the spring of 1916, the 23-year-old Franco finally got his chance to lead his company in a key battle against the rebels. Franco led a charge up a fortified hill, and as always, he led from the front. His men were raked by machine gun fire from several trenches. They were able to capture the trenches, but at a heavy cost. 56 of the 133 men in his unit were dead, and Franco himself was gutshot. But he was known throughout the army for his luck, and it didn't fail him now. He survived. Franco would spend the next few months convalescing in El Ferrol, but soon returned to his unit. Shortly after, he was placed on reserve and then reassigned to the garrison in Oviedo, a small city not far from his hometown. But in 1920, he got his chance to return to Morocco when Spain wanted to create an elite foreign legion there and Franco was chosen to help. He returned to Morocco in October of 1920 and quickly got to work. In very little time, the Legion would become the most effective unit in the entire Spanish army. And when an insurrection broke out the next year, Franco's units were practically the only ones within the Legion that were battle-ready. They put that readiness to the test by rescuing the eastern city of Melilla from being overrun. Franco performed admirably. It wasn't long until he was promoted to lieutenant colonel and put in charge of the entire Legion. He was only 30 years old. Although things were going well for Franco in Morocco, they were deteriorating back in Spain. Spain's archaic government was in drastic need of an overhaul. At the time, the country operated as a constitutional monarchy where much legislative power came from an elected parliament, although the king still retained broad executive powers. There were three main political factions, conservatives, Republicans, and anarchists. And all three were hungry for change and power. 
After a series of strikes and one political assassination, it seemed like chaos had overtaken the country. A situation that military leaders could not abide. So on September 13, 1923, they took matters into their own hands and staged a coup. Installing General Primo de Rivera as Spain's new military dictator. Coming up, we'll see how Primo's dictatorship set the stage for civil war and how his fall caused Franco to finally enter politics. Hi, it's Vanessa from Parcast. They say there's someone for everyone, a soul to share your secrets with, a companion to grow old with, a conspirator to commit crimes with. Starting this February on Spotify, learn about the lethal and legendary lovers who fought the law in the Parcast limited series, Criminal Couples. If you've ever referred to your best friend or beloved as your partner in crime, this exclusive series is for you. Beginning February 1st, join me for a collection of unlawful love stories from shows across the ParCast network. Discover the extreme beliefs of cult leaders Tony and Susan Alamo, enter Fred and Rose West's real-life house of horrors, and experience the madness and motives of the San Francisco witch killers. Fall for the most famous and feared pairs in history in the Spotify original from ParCast, Criminal Couples. Enjoy two-part episodes every Monday starting February 1st. Follow Criminal Couples free and exclusively on Spotify. Now back to the story. General Primo de Rivera staged a military coup in 1923 to become Spain's military dictator. The king quickly accepted the coup as legitimate and proclaimed Primo as Spain's new leader. It was an entirely bloodless transfer of power. Many Spaniards welcomed Primo de Rivera, at least at first. The wealthy industrialists lauded him. The liberals, socialists, and anarchists assume he couldn't be any worse than the incompetent government that he replaced. Unfortunately, Primo de Rivera proved to be no better than his predecessors. While he passed some reforms, many of his other plans were disastrous. His effort to modernize Spain's infrastructure ended as an expensive failure. His attempt to strengthen the currency by tying it to the gold standard backfired, causing the value to plummet by 50%. However, under his watch, Spain, and Franco in particular, was able to end hostilities in Morocco. In mid-1925, French and Spanish armies teamed up to launch a major offensive, crushing the main outfit of Berberifian rebels. By May of the following year, the leader of these rebels, Abdel Krim, surrendered. For his service in the Moroccan conflict, Franco was promoted to Brigadier General on February 3, 1926. The honors kept rolling in. Primo de Rivera tapped Franco to be the head of a new military academy, which opened its doors in the fall of 1928. Franco had always enjoyed training recruits, and he relished the opportunity to set the curriculum for young officers. Franco's stint in the academy was also a time of intense personal growth, during which he began to develop an interest in politics and economics. It was a good time to brush up on political theory, 
because Spain was entering one of its most politically unstable periods in history. Thanks to his poorly executed reforms, Primo de Rivera was facing opposition from Spain's main political movements, the liberal republicans, the socialists, and the anarchists. Even the conservatives and the military no longer supported him. Primo de Rivera knew he was finished without the army's support, so he resigned in 1930. The Spanish king assigned yet another general to form a government, but he was just as ineffective as Primo de Rivera had been. The next April, the socialists and republicans gained power in almost every provincial capital during the general elections. They claimed that these results proved people were done with the monarchy. And on April 14, 1931, Spain was proclaimed a republic. The new president decreed that the king should leave Spain that afternoon. The king took his advice and left for Cartagena, essentially abdicating the throne. During its first two years, the republic focused on extensive reforms. Church and state were officially separated for the first time in Spanish history. But it was the military reforms that hit Franco the hardest. The defense ministry purged the bloated officer corps from more than 20,000 officers to less than 14,000. Those who didn't retire or get fired risked getting demoted. Franco, though, was able to stay at the rank of brigadier general. The new government also closed Franco's military academy at the end of the 1931 term. Franco, in tears, made a sad farewell speech to his cadets on July 14th. He reportedly ended his speech with Viva España, rather than the more orthodox Viva la República. Despite these changes, the new government was struggling. The Great Depression struck, and Spain was not immune from the fallout. The economic trouble led to more civil unrest. Several small revolts broke out during the early 1930s. The most notable was a bloody, but ultimately unsuccessful military revolt in August 1932. Naturally, Franco didn't join, preferring to keep his nose out of politics as usual. His abstention proved prescient. As a reward for his loyalty to the Republic, Franco was named military commander of the Balearic Islands. While Franco's career seemed to have stabilized, the same once again could not be said for his country. The government was plagued by turnover and insecurity. Throughout 1933 and 34, each of Spain's political factions organized protests, insurrections, and strikes. Franco, however, saw his own situation drastically improve. In 1935, he was appointed head of all military operations in Morocco. This was the job he had dreamed of since he first joined the army. But soon, Spain started experiencing even more political turmoil. The government announced that there would be new elections on February 16, 1936. But thanks to the constant strikes and revolts over the last several years, few Spaniards believed in compromising with their political rivals. As a prominent socialist leader declared, if the right wins the elections, we will have to go straight to civil war. The February 16th election ended in a near draw between left and right, with the left coalition just slightly ahead. However, in six provinces, leftist mobs had risen up to interfere with the ballot counting, 
the government refused to do anything to stop them. By the evening of the 16th, leftist militias were breaking into prisons and freeing detained revolutionaries. The situation was near anarchy. Franco was extremely troubled by the violence. He phoned the director of the Civil Guard and recommended that martial law might be necessary to ensure a fair election. The director rebuffed him. The prime minister was terrified that the revolutionaries might kill him, so he resigned on February 19th. The entire cabinet resigned shortly thereafter. The president felt he had no alternative but to submit to the winning leftist coalition known as the Popular Front, so he allowed them to form a government under Manuel Azaña. After only three days in office, Azaña made sweeping changes to the military. He removed the most conservative commanders from top posts, banishing them out of Madrid. Franco himself became military commander of the distant Canary Islands. Franco was insulted. He thought about taking a leave, but concluded that he would be much better positioned if he still held a rank. Intervention was very much on his mind on March 8th, when he met with several key generals to prepare for a military revolt. They agreed to only rebel if it became absolutely necessary. A political crisis wouldn't fall under absolutely necessary. Rather, for them to rise up, there would need to be a serious threat of revolution. Though Asanya was unaware of this meeting, he was suspicious of Franco. He put the general under surveillance. His phone was tapped and much of his mail was opened. He could only speak with his co-conspirators on the mainland via a personal courier. In early April, the far-left government removed the figurehead president from power, replacing him with Azania. It was a technically illegal act, and Franco and his allies found it very troubling. Spain was a powder keg waiting to explode. The spark came in the form of a lieutenant named Jose Castillo. Castillo, a leftist, was shot in the streets of Madrid on the night of July 12th. Leftist officers immediately rushed to the Ministry of Defense and demanded permission to arrest many right-wing leaders in Parliament. It's not clear whether the ministry gave its tacit approval or not, but the officers went ahead with the scheme anyway. They kidnapped a member of Parliament named Jose Calvo Sotelo and shot him in the back of the head. These extrajudicial killings were the perfect catalyst for the military's planned intervention. Franco knew he had to act. He loaded his family onto a German ship and sent them to France, and then boarded an English plane that took him to Morocco. He arrived in Tetuan on July 19th, where he assumed command of all forces in Morocco. It was time for a civil war. Coming up, Franco becomes a dictator. Now back to the story. On July 19, 1936, 43-year-old Francisco Franco arrived in Tetuan, Morocco to a cheering crowd of soldiers. He assumed the command of all Moroccan forces, which would soon travel with him to Spain to revolt against the government. Franco and his fellow conspirators were known as the Nationalists. They hoped that since they constituted the majority of the military leadership, a large portion of the armed forces would back them and it would be a short war. That hope did not materialize. 
Spain's armed forces were split almost evenly between the nationalists and their enemies, the Republicans. The Republicans blockaded Morocco, making it impossible for Franco to transfer his forces to Spain by sea as he'd been planning. So instead, he used the handful of antiquated transport planes at his disposal to start what might have been the first military airlift in history. Franco quickly realized that air power would be a deciding factor, not just in transferring his troops to Spain, but in the war as a whole. He needed more planes, which meant he needed allies. He sent aides to Rome to ask for help from Benito Mussolini, and he sent others to Berlin to ask for help from Adolf Hitler. Mussolini wanted to dominate the Mediterranean, and having a friendly power in Spain would help. Hitler also liked the idea of having another ally and hoped the Spanish Civil War would distract France and Great Britain long enough for them to annex Austria and Czechoslovakia. They both agreed to help. By the first week in August, German supplies and planes were reaching Franco's troops in Morocco. In September, the naval blockade ended and Franco had successfully airlifted 21,000 men and more than 771,000 pounds of arms and supplies into Spain. Returning to the mainland, Franco could finally get to work. He first secured the border with Portugal, since they helped the nationalist cause with logistical support. He then began an advance toward Madrid. It took about two and a half months for him to arrive at the outskirts of the capital. This war was different than any Spain had ever fought. It was a war of ideas more than a war for land. Because of that, both sides initiated brutal programs of repression and murder. Franco and other generals set up military tribunals almost immediately after the war began. They targeted any leftist leaders, thinkers, or activists they could capture. The Republicans did likewise. In total, the Republicans carried out around 55,000 executions. For the Nationalists, estimates of their purges are around 45,000. Franco, at first, wasn't heavily involved in this operation. He was more concerned with winning the war. But he didn't take any action to stop the extrajudicial killings for over six months. Franco had grown up in a world of harsh military justice. To him, strict punishment wasn't just par for the course. It was the only way to discipline. And it seemed to be working. The nationalists came within about 75 miles of Madrid by September 3rd. The Republicans were facing loss after loss, and they were panicking. Fortunately for them, aid came in mid-September in the form of Joseph Stalin. Stalin saw the Republicans as left-leaning allies whom he could use to stop the spread of fascism across Europe. He sent them arms, advisors, airplanes, aviators, tanks, tank crews, and volunteer forces. September was an important month for the Republicans, but it was even more important for Franco. Two monarchist generals who were perhaps in close contact with the deposed king approached him to see if he would become the nationalist commander-in-chief and temporary head of state. Franco initially rebuffed the suggestion. He most certainly wanted to be the leader, but he was being cautious. He would never campaign to be the head of the nationalist's cause 
unless he knew his military colleagues would approve. A meeting of the Nationalist Council was called on September 21st. The two monarchist generals called a vote to elect Franco as generalissimo. One person abstained. The rest all voted in favor. 43-year-old Francisco Franco was proclaimed generalissimo on October 1st, 1936. During the ceremony, he made a short speech in which he promised to raise Spain to the place that corresponds to her history and her rank in earlier times. More preferably, Franco soon became referred to as caudillo, a Castilian term meaning leader that dates to the Middle Ages. Franco spent the remainder of October establishing his new government. One of his biggest problems was that he didn't control a large enough city to house the entire government. Instead, the nationalist regime was spread out over several smaller cities until Madrid could be taken. Franco also began to wage an ideological war. The nationalists thought Spain had lost its way and needed to return to 16th century ideas to reclaim their glory. They purged schools and libraries of almost all left-leaning or so-called radical works. The new regime even began to refer to the Civil War as the Crusade. In early 1937, Germany and Italy started pressing the nationalists to create a single-party government. But Franco was reluctant. He cared more about combat than he did about politics. The arrival of Franco's brother-in-law, Ramon Serrano Sunier, would be what finally set Spain down the path to quasi-fascism. Serrano had a great deal of political experience, and he quickly became Franco's chief political advisor. One of his first initiatives was to create a state party called the Spanish Traditional Phalanx. Even though the party was inspired by Italian fascism, Franco was always cagey about calling his new state fascist. He claimed in an interview that Spain has its own tradition, and the majority of the modern formulas that are to be discovered in the totalitarian countries may be found already incorporated within our national past. But the nationalists still needed the capital for their new government. The Republicans had fortified the area around Madrid, protecting the city with artillery and tanks from Stalin. It was still too risky. So while they prepared and gathered strength, Franco decided to focus on the northern zone of Spain, the industrial heart of the country. The offensive was launched on March 31, 1937. Franco's 40,000 infantry were supported by Italy and Germany with 200 planes as well as over 200 pieces of artillery. All of Basque country in the north were taken by mid-June. The rest of the North fell by the end of October. The scales had tipped decisively toward the nationalists. It was during this campaign that the bombing of Guernica occurred, an event that would be immortalized by Picasso's famous oil painting. Franco finally launched an all-out assault on Madrid on March 27, 1939. The Republican defenders had no will to fight, and Franco was able to declare victory on April 1st. Franco had achieved all of his wildest fantasies, from becoming a general, to becoming the military commander of all of Morocco, to becoming the dictator that some considered the savior of Spain. Now the war was over, 
But for Franco, the war was the easy part. He now faced a challenge his years of soldiering couldn't prepare him for. Keeping his subjects out of a war that was about to consume the world. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll see how Franco gave in to his worst tendencies once he gained absolute power, and how he eventually transitioned to a much more benign rule that reinvigorated Spain's economy. Among the many sources we used, we found Franco, a personal and political biography by Stanley G. Payne and Jesus Palacios, as well as The Battle for Spain by Anthony Beaver, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Dictators was written by Charles Brock, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Chelsea Wood and Brian Petrus. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Hi, it's Vanessa again. Before you go, don't forget to check out the new ParCast limited series, Criminal Couples. From apocalyptic cult leaders to bank-robbing bandits to married mafiosos, these couples give new meaning to Till Death Do Us Part. Enjoy two-part episodes every Monday starting February 1st. Follow Criminal Couples free and exclusively on Spotify.